0: Welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host. In Zensylvania, we explore motorcycle zen, literature, philosophy, and a variety of other topics. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. Here in Zensylvania, we try to maintain a beginner's mind during our explorations. With your feedback and participation, I hope Stansylvania is the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. Episode 18 Footnotes to Minimalism A grey and colourless philosophy Let me start by asking whether you have ever gone through a period of your life when minimalism seemed to have been not only a good idea, but something that you absolutely needed to act on as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. This essay is about that type of experience and also about some implications of the contemporary minimalism, which I have had occasion to observe and explore. Not surprisingly, my exploration leads to several insights and connections that I've found to Motorcycle Zen and the Zensylvania state of mind. But first, let me focus on the title of this essay, A Gray and Colorless Philosophy. I imagine that this word choice presents something of a stark and bleak outlook on what is actually a very popular lifestyle, philosophy, and design aesthetic despite the characterization I've started with, minimalism is a trend that I readily admit a certain affinity for. It is exactly because of the attraction that minimalism has for me that it's also worthy of some critical examination and even criticism. And so we come to an essay title that may seem less than flattering. But it also seems to be a reasonably accurate observation of the mainstream contemporary minimalism that is recently flourished dig into the aesthetics of contemporary minimalism and it is nearly impossible not to be buried in avalanches of white gray and black perhaps with some wood tones mixed in here and there as a gesture to naturalism as a design concept contemporary minimalism seems to have a preoccupation with objects and environments that are sanitized of color Or perhaps purified is a more precise descriptor for what may be happening within minimalism. This is an interesting situation with a variety of drivers worth examining, especially for those who may feel that acting on minimalism is a pressing matter. It can be instructive to appreciate what it is that moves us toward radical lifestyle and ideological changes or approaches. Are we reacting against something, as with a sanitization, or are we moving towards something, as with a purification? While the outcomes may be superficially similar, the process and aesthetic effects are likely to be very different in quality. As well, this observation of the aesthetics of contemporary minimalism has, at least for me, a startling connection to Robert Persig's Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Stick with me and we'll get there in the essay and also to some insights that I've taken away. What is minimalism? Rather paradoxically, defining minimalism is not a simple task. As with any ideology, there are more than a few underlying concepts, elements, and assumptions packed into that larger concept. When you start looking into it, minimalism is actually more complicated, nuanced, and sophisticated than it seems. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I'm not going to try to dig into all of those foundational bits, as that would make this exploration much larger than we have time for right now. What I'm going to do instead is set aside as much of the You won't get this unless you first get that philosophizing as possible. So here is the official Zensylvania definition of minimalism pending any future editorial fiat. Minimalism is an attitude about one's relationship to material possessions, also known as stuff, whereby maintaining the greatest possible independence from and indifference to it is ideal. this definition of materialism carries several immediate and essential corollaries and outcomes. 1. Stuff is inherently a burden, regardless of the perceived benefits that it may also provide. 2. Owning, possessing, and maintaining the least amount of stuff as practically possible is desirable as it reduces burden. 3 complicated design is the physical representation of conceptual stuff and therefore represents intellectual and aesthetic burden Four. when stuff must be possessed the least complicated ornate and attention catching of stuff is preferred over the most complicated ornate and attention catching are these all oversimplifications, reductionist views, uh, minimalist approach? Well, hopefully so. And hopefully that makes my definition consistent with contemporary minimalism. Personal experience. In 2016, amidst a variety of relatively stressful life events, it occurred to me in a strangely compulsive kind of way, that it was necessary that I significantly reduce the gross tonnage and clutter of my personal possessions. It was a disconcerting experience to ponder just how much all of my stuff weighed. While the particular circumstances don't much matter for this essay, clearly I had been pondering what would be involved to move all of this stuff from one place to another. It's an issue that I've needed to consider many times, having moved house to far-flung corners of the province I've called home throughout my life. Back in 2008, I recall being somewhat appalled by the thousands of pounds involved in a relocation from Thunder Bay to St. Thomas, and we've only acquired more stuff since then. How much might it all weigh now? I honestly have no idea. As a detail of minimalism, I put some basic questions to myself. If I needed to move all of my stuff, what would be involved and how much might it cost? Is there stuff I can dispose of now to minimize that potential future burden? And With all the stuff that I own, how much of it is actually meaningful? And indeed, what do I mean by Meaningful. Well, minimalism seemed to offer attitudes, methods, tools, and options for reducing the burdens of stuff that I felt, both for the stuff I already possessed and maintained and for potential future stuff that would almost certainly cross my path. Predictably, I began an effort to get rid of as much of that stuff as I could, contemporary minimalism and its potential meanings and implications for me. One of the first things I did was to catalog my individual personal belongings. The exercise allowed me to understand exactly how much stuff I had laying around and how much of it I didn't really need or use in any active kind of way. I eventually found that I could get my individual personal stuff to something approximating 100 items. This included such things as clothing, musical instruments, objets d'art, electronics, books, and anything solely and exclusively my own. To do so would mean almost wholly culling from my habits of ownership the concept and practice of collection. For similar reasons, I also excluded tools and other items of practical usage that are necessary to maintain our family home. It simply didn't make sense to ditch stuff that would be useful, if not essential, to getting on with the life that I was interested to put into order this reference to 100 items is a popular benchmark in contemporary minimalism there are books websites and who knows what else devoted to that somewhat mystically specified quantity there doesn't seem to be any objectively certain reason that 100 items should be chosen instead of some other number 101 97 55 doesn't matter excepting perhaps that it is easy to remember and has the practical application of being sufficiently high to allow quite a lot of stuff. Even still, in my own case, I quickly established various conditions and caveats to exempt myself from stuff-possessing limitations. I've already mentioned a few of those. Still, setting an upper limit of stuff is the whole point of minimalism it is a practice of setting a personal minimum or baseline recommend conducting an inventory of personally owned items whether you're interested in minimizing that inventory or not it's appalling how quickly the list grows even if you're prone to counting a pair of socks as a single item idealistic magical numbers like 100 become quaint rather quickly and you'll discover the degree to which materialism dominates your daily life. I've used the term magical because any arbitrary quantity, which does not serve a specific objective limit is indeed dabbling in a kind of fantasy land exercise and internal negotiation of the personal boundaries of the material-based basis of your life. By contrast, consider the objective and practical limits set by airlines for online luggage no more than x pieces where each piece weighs no more than y pounds or kilograms airlines look at your stuff as a matter of logistics rather than mystics there isn't a problem with minimalist pursuit that allows for magic and fantasy indeed my own indulgence is almost wholly composed of it there is no actively and externally imposed limit To the amount of stuff i might acquire within my resources but the difference between an arbitrary self-prescribed quantity and an externally imposed mandate is a genuine education consider those who spend some period of their life constrained by external limits such as long-term care residents military personnel or indeed the poor this exercise of quantifying and limiting stuff had me reflect that when I was in my teens and early twenties, I was mostly satisfied if all my possessions could be packed into whatever vehicle I happened to own at the time, and therefore readily transported wherever I happened to be going. This method of limiting my stuff was essentially assigned to me when I moved out of my parents' home, and it was given the frank and direct information that, anything left behind would be proactively collected for a trip to the landfill. Take that for an externally imposed scenario. This method of limiting my stuff to the amount I'm able to cart along has turned out to be extremely practical and effective. It's an approach that seems to strongly align with several philosophies that I appreciate from stoicism and pragmatism all the way through to certain aspects of Zen and fuzzy logic. If you happen to be couch surfing around or otherwise uncertain, what roof, if any, may be over your head on any given night, then it probably makes sense to have only as much stuff as you personally can move around. Uncertainty reveals that stuff, despite the pleasure and benefits that might be derived, is indeed also a burden. In a world confounded by concerns about environmental damage, rising costs of living, global elites who promote being happy whilst owning nothing, military and social conflicts, and a whole host of other such matters, a sober assessment of uncertainty in your life requires an examination of your relationship to stuff. There may well be very large external forces to consider. Indeed, I'm struck by the notion that nomadic people throughout history would have considered it common sense, that humans need to place transportability at the center of material possession. Indeed, for the vast majority of human existence, permanent settlements, houses, towns, and cities were unknown. Compared to the millions of years that humans have existed, we have lived stationary rooted lives for only some 10 to 15,000 years. We evolved as relatively stuff-less nomadic hunter-gatherers. Our deepest instincts evolved over those millions of years and seem to contradict our drive to gather stuff. In crisis, we look around for the most essential things to take as we flee. And yet we are also drawn to acquire and collect everything from pretty rocks at the beach to clothing, books, motorcycles, cars or frankly, any manner or size of bauble that one cares to mention. Perhaps it is a part of some nesting instinct related to creating a safe and stable territory to provide for and rear newer generations. Walden Pond. It's clear that contemporary minimalism is not a direct product of our collective human heritage as nomads. There certainly are nomadic cultures even in this 21st century, but most of us are not looking at these cultures as the source of inspiration for how to declutter the closet or design the kitchen, though perhaps we should. Contemporary minimalism is clearly also not a direct product of economic poverty. Those who engage in minimalism often seem to have more than enough money to spend if they wish to. Interestingly, however, minimalism, does seem to take its expressive form from scenarios that are necessarily spare in their original occurrence. The concept of tiny homes has been growing in North America and around the world to one extent or another. Tiny homes are akin to minimalism insofar as they are a scaling back from the average 1,700 square foot home. But tiny homes are often not minimalist in their design. It seems to me that tiny homes are distant relative of Henry David Thoreau's cabin near Walden Pond. In essence, this is a reduced square footage still based upon a presumed longer-term residency when compared to a genuinely nomadic or necessarily uncertain situation. Culling the concept of collections. In my own case, when I approached the inventory of my personal stuff, I unexpectedly learned that I had a strange relationship Collection. I think most people would agree that a collection is a situation where we possess and maintain more than one of any given item. Personal collection of this type of item is purses, books, records, antique teapots, motorcycles, or what have you. Yet, if you conduct an inventory of your belongings, you may find, as I certainly did, that most of us have a wide range of collections that manage to grow over time and without any seriously sustained effort. Here are a few examples that I discovered in my own case. A collection of leather jackets. A collection of audio equipment and related electronics. A collection of shoes. I think you take my meaning. I learned that I had a collection of items that were different in their design, but still fulfilled the same basic purpose. Even today, after having culled my personal inventory quite significantly, I have three different leather jackets, which I maintain as each jacket seems to suit a slightly different weather condition. If I were to remove that modifying term leather, I would have to admit to maintaining no fewer than a dozen jackets. It turns out that my personal mountain of stuff can be easily lumped into collection of items that all serve the same or substantially similar fundamental purposes. It turns out I was and am a passive and unconscious collector. Case study number one, books. Over the course of most of my life, I've had an unreasonable attachment to books. At one point, my personal library included hundreds upon hundreds of books. During house moves, this translated into hundreds and hundreds of pounds of cartage from one place to another. Cartage that cost a lot of money. Books are just one type of item. After reading a book, the book became an artifact of having read the book. Seeing the physical object was a reminder of the experience. I used Goodreads, the social media platform, to document all of the books I read and to serve as that visual digital artifact. The fact of the digital artifact allowed me to let the decaying physical objects go. For me, that turns out to have been a good thing as hundreds of pounds of paper have been sent off to used bookstores and the like. And hopefully for the enjoyment of others for me i now have a much more narrowly curated personal library of books that i actively expect to reuse as i said books are one object and similar situations apply to a music library such as tapes and cds and devices to play those on clothing and other collections of objects which accumulated and accumulated As it turns out, getting rid of all that stuff did not culminate in the path I had expected, but it certainly did play a role in preparing me to move forward in my life. Case study number two, cars and motorcycles. Needless to say, notions of minimalism have even influenced my attitudes about motorcycles and cars. I admit to having owned an unnecessarily large number of motorized vehicles. And this ownership has cost much more money over the decades than makes much logical sense. I also admit to not caring very much about that fact in the moments that I consider a particularly terrific Yamaha, Moto Guzzi or Mopar. However, my experience with and contemplations about minimalism has tempered my approach. At one time, I had three operable, and one inoperable vehicles in the driveway. The total fuel burning displacement of all those engines was almost 13 liters. And the grand total weight of metal, glass, and plastic was north of 14,000 pounds. That's a lot of stuff. When it comes to quantification, my Yamaha XJ550 was only a half liter of displacement and some 400 pounds. Mind you, it was only a practical option for two thirds of the year. Similarly, my bicycle weighs something less than 25 pounds and has no displacement at all. So where have I landed? Currently we own a single vehicle weighing about 3000 pounds and displacing two liters of fuel and air burning capacity. While it's still a shockingly large quantity of metal, glass, and plastic to fuss with, it does have the capacity to carry quite a bit of my stuff around when and if I need. The Meeting of East and West by F.S.C. Northrop An Inquiry Concerning World Understanding. Finally, we're getting to the reason that I titled this essay with that rather combative characterization of minimalism as a gray and colorless philosophy. And I do hope despite the meandering path that I've taken, that we arrive at a conclusion that is indeed consistent with that introduction. In chapter 11 of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, Robert Persig describes a period of time when the narrator Phaedrus returns from military service in Asia and spends a period of time in confrontation of several fundamental conceptions about existence. While the scene is comparatively brief, I've also found that it is an extraordinarily useful scene for tracking Persig's philosophical influences, and in the so doing, providing an insight into the aesthetics of mainstream contemporary minimalism. So let's have a look at this passage. The final strong fragment from that part of the world is of a compartment of a troopship. He is on his way home. The compartment is empty and unused. He is alone on a bunk made of canvas laced to a steel frame, like a trampoline. There are five of these to a tier, tier after tier of them, completely filling the empty troop compartment. This is the foremost compartment of the ship, and the canvas in the adjoining frame rise and falls, accompanied by elevator feelings in his stomach. He contemplates these things and a deep booming on the steel plates all around him and realizes that except for these signs, there is no indication whatsoever that this entire compartment is rising massively high up into the air and then plunging down over and over again. He wonders if it is that which is making it difficult to concentrate on the book before him, but he realizes that no, the book is just hard. It's a text on Oriental philosophy, and it's the most difficult book he's ever read. He's glad to be alone and bored in this empty troop compartment, otherwise he'd never get through it. The book states that there's a theoretic component of man's existence which is primarily Western, and this corresponded to Phaedrus' laboratory past, and an aesthetic component of man's existence which is seen more strongly in the Orient, and this corresponded to Phaedrus' Korean past, and that these never seemed to meet. These terms, theoretic and aesthetic, correspond to what Phaedrus later called classic and romantic modes of reality, and probably shaped these terms in his mind more than he ever knew. The difference is that the classic reality is primarily theoretic, but has its own aesthetic too. The Romantic reality is primarily aesthetic, but has its theory, too. The Theoretic and Aesthetic split is between components of a single world. The Classic and Romantic split is between two separate worlds. The philosophy book, which is called The Meeting of East and West by F.S.C. Northrop, suggests that greater cognizance be made of the undifferentiated aesthetic continuum from which the Theoretic rises. Phaedrus didn't understand this, but after arriving in Seattle and his discharge from the army, he sat in his hotel room for two whole weeks, eating enormous Washington apples and thinking, and eating more apples, and thinking some more. And then as a result of all these fragments and thinking, returned to the university to study philosophy. His lateral drift was ended. He was actively in pursuit of something now, The military life is filled with uncertainty and a perpetual requirement to be able to pick up and go. The extraneous is soon purged in these environments. Military personnel don't go about their business lugging a dozen coats, just in case the one they happen to be wearing doesn't precisely suit the occasion or the weather. This massive rising and falling of the ship is a mirroring of the polarizing pendulum swings of the narrator's perspectives on reality and existence within that passage. Inside the compartment, there's no hint that the whole thing is moving, that there are indeed two different perspectives. The compartment is a metaphor for the polarities of Eastern and Western aesthetics that the narrator is reading in the following paragraphs. At the close of the scene, Persig describes Phaedrus having returned from the East as spending time thinking and eating enormous Washington apples. While it's tempting to let the metaphors speak for themselves, I'm going to indulge in over-explanation to avoid letting anything go unacknowledged. Apples are often, accurately or not, depicted as being the actual fruit of the tree of knowledge from the Abrahamic religion's biblical Adam and Eve story. These two first people were evicted from the garden of Eden for eating the forbidden fruit. Persig has almost certainly included this reference to apples in this section to reference the myth. If it is equally certain that Persig states that they are Washington apples to emphasize the American new world position or knowledge that Phaedrus was in as for minimalism. All that is depicted is consuming the fruit of the tree of knowledge and thinking. The hotel room is also left colorless, and even the apples themselves are colorless. These are sparse scenes within a kind of minimalism. Given the minimalist underpinnings of the scene, it is that much more apparent that Persig's nod to Northrop's book should not be taken as extraneous. Having acquired a relatively battered second-hand copy of it, I've taken advantage of the opportunity to read it several times. I'm not sure that I found it to be a particularly challenging read, but I wasn't sitting on an empty bunk compartment of a military ship at the time. Apart from a general recommendation to anyone who may be interested to explore Persig's philosophical influence, it is an excellent addition to a collection of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance Oriented Library. There's a section of the book that has perspective that we can bring to bear on the relationships between minimalist doctrines and minimalist aesthetics. And here it is in chapter two of the meeting of East and West. Northrop writes, there is another difference between the Mexicans and the Anglo-Americans approach to democracy and its bearing on religion for the Mexicans art Is a necessity of life, not a luxury. Religion for them, if it is anything, is a passion, a moving emotional experience. The culture of the Aztec period and that of the colonial period satisfied both these requirements. Also, Catholic theology, whatever its defects, is rigorously defined and consistently developed. Consequently, the Mexicans know what a doctrinally, meaningfully, aesthetically adequate, emotionally moving religion is like. For people of the English-speaking world, art tends to be a luxury or an afterthought, or else a hash of souvenirs without integrity because of the use of old art forms for modern institutions, and doctrines which deny the theses which the art forms represent. With respect to art, the Protestant church is scared. At its worst its art is crude, at its best neutral, preferring a pure white in the New England congregational churches or a dull gray in the Episcopal chapels, which does not commit itself. A church with a diversity of vivid colors, which the Indian aesthetic imagination demands, would shock a Protestant congregation. But imagine conversely how the Protestant religion must appear to the religious Mexicans. It's exceedingly verbal preaching, its aesthetic colorblindness, and its emotional tepidity and coldness must make it look to them like no religion at all. Well, for those who study Zen in the art, this is a significant passage as it establishes the direction that Persig takes in his philosophy and provides a philosophical path to follow and also explains why he ended up at the University of Chicago trying to advocate for his ideas as a breakthrough in the synthesizing of Eastern and Western philosophy. In the meeting of East and West, one may also find connections to Alfred North Whitehead's process in reality. And this is another significant recommendation for those interested to explore philosophical work that overlaps Persik's. As to Whitehead, I will admit that process in reality readily ranks with Barrick Spinoza's ethics as perhaps the most difficult works of philosophy I have ever had occasion to read. But for the purpose of this essay, clearly I'm focusing on Northrop's contrasting of doctrines, which requisitely include aesthetically satisfying diversity of color and those that exclude color in favor of a kind of doctrinal purity encapsulated by the exclusion of art and color and the focus on doctrine. In the spirit of the meeting of East and West, it may be suddenly clear how the aesthetics of Eastern and particularly Japanese minimalist art and aesthetics have been so popular in the Americas where several varieties of Protestantism are to be found. Almost certainly the cultural forces which produced minimalist aesthetics in Japan and other parts of Asia are significantly different than those that produced Protestantism in Europe and further developed it in North America. However, those who may have grown up with a gray, and colorless religion may find meaningful aesthetic, emotional, and psychological, if not spiritual, comfort in a philosophy, design, or lifestyle that centers on those traits. It is doctrinal asceticism as aesthetics. This observation of Northrop's that Anglo-American Protestant religion is largely verbal and colorless strikes me as meaningful in context of what I'm calling contemporary Western minimalism. Minimalism, a design approach, which strips away as much extraneous or superfluous excess as possible, seems extremely well adapted to a religious tradition, which does much of the same thing. Protestantism is nothing but the word, so to speak. Well, minimalism is nothing but what is necessary as well. The concepts resonate. Science too is often viewed as sterile. The necessity of science is to remove potentially confounding variables, control the experiment as tightly as possible, make things as black and white as possible and scientific environments, such as laboratories, hospitals, and even modern high-tech manufacturing facilities are similarly sterile of color and excess. Nothing can damage the pure experiment. Perhaps this is why Persig's motorcycle is described primarily as black and chrome. It is minimalist it has the aesthetics of the classic the romantic concepts are the romance of the technical there is no color there can be several potentially valuable benefits to employing a minimalist philosophy or attitude to your life home or environment at particular times of life it may be logistically and economically practical not to have a lot of stuff to move around. No doubt. There are some people who never or rarely experience the need to move their residence from one place to another, but for those who do, or even for those who sense any insecurity in their residency, paring down the things that they may need to relocate is a practical benefit. And there's no reason that everything needs to be either gray, white, or black when those moves happen. A single orange hatchback can do the job just as well as a grey one might. A practice of not acquiring things in the first place is probably more valuable than a practice of paring down. In this age of hyperconsumption, it is probably a very good idea to consider all purchases much longer than advertisers would prefer. And when the purchase is made, there's no reason to exclude aesthetic satisfaction from the list of requirements. It's not the presence of aesthetically satisfying things that must be addressed it is the clutter of piling thing upon thing to the extent that all that may be apprehended is the overstimulation of clutter and in essence the disappearance of aesthetic satisfaction in the first place minimalism has within it a severe doctrine that actively stifles joy in living given complete reign minimalism threatens to extinguish one's engagement with art, color, expression, and aesthetic satisfaction, all in the pursuit of that purity. It seems to me that we can and should derive benefits from minimalism or whatever concept that seems to offer some way to improve the conditions of our lives, but all that doctrine requires boundaries and limitations. They require counterweights to ensure that the ideas and strategies we employ to make our lives enjoyable are not employed excessively such that we create harmful and miserable deficits. So at least for me, I prefer a colorful variety of minimalism. One that is minimal without being insufficient of the very art, music, color, and joy, substance, expression, and emotion that is the stuff of life. The cutting edge of reality is very much a process of meaningfully engaging every part of our sensory lives. Thank you for joining me in this part of Zensylvania. I hope you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Zensylvania stories and essays at zensylvania.com. If you've enjoyed the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com, or you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message for use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you again for joining me in Pennsylvania. it's a state of mind.